What? College matters. What? College, college matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. The cool thing about students is that that energy and curiosity, that sense of invulnerability, mm-hmm. the hunger and the eagerness they have to um, think about their future and to be a part of that is really is really very inspiring. That is Sean Kennedy, co-director of college counseling at Ravenscroft School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hello, I'm your host, Venkat Raman. Sean Kennedy's counseling journey had its origins in high school. Inspired by the impact his high school college counselor had on him, his peers, and their families, he jumped at a counseling role early on in his career. His professional journey has taken him on a tour to different parts of the school systems and to a number of different schools. Sean is very active in the professional organizations of counselors. On our podcast, Sean talks about his background, Ravenscroft School, his counseling approach and philosophy, the challenges, managing expectations, and his advice for high school students. Now, before we jump into the podcast, here are the high fives, five highlights from the podcast. had an awesome college counselor named Carol Bernstein, Mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, a great advocate and guide uh, to me and my family. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being just fascinated by how her, her role at that particular time in my life and in the lives of my peers served so pivotal in helping us move in that transition between high school and college, which but what, what has always been important to me and, and something that I'm continuing to refine in my practice, even all these mm-hmm. years since I began, is the idea of being a partner and advocate for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, the, wh- you know, whether the outcomes that uh, they hope for um, arrive or not, uh, that I always want my students to know that I'm there to support them. Very yep. rarely do colleges ask in their applications why students have done the things that they have done. Why right. were you a me- Why did you become the president of the Spanish club? Why mm-hmm. did you continue playing um, golf? Why did you continue to play the oboe? And yeah. so uh, to me, I really try to get students to think a great deal about that. Why? Because mm-hmm. universities probably get the most amount of attention, those that are in that highly selective or selective range is that the, the balance of, you know, between ambition and reality, Um, you know, it's very easy to fall in love with a name or or a brand. Uh um, But getting students to look past the name to what is it about the university that actually is right for you? The use of AI 
um, yes, generating chat, essays. Um, chat GPT. You know, yes, with chat GPT and other other similar AI bots that will be, you know, I'm sure will continue to proliferate. The reliance on those without alteration, that's, I think, a concern for me because you can, you know, if you, you play with those, you can get a, a decent essay written yeah, yeah. Um, by those. It, it won't write a great essay. These were the high fives brought to you by College Matters. Alma Matters. matters. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm sure you want to hear the entire podcast with Sean. So without further ado, here's the podcast with Sean Kennedy. So if you're ready, we can jump right in. Absolutely. Cool. So maybe the best place to start is a little bit about your background. Sure. So my professional background, uh, I've had about nearly 25 years of experience in secondary and higher education in a wide variety of roles. So I began my career in education as a high school English teacher and mm -hmm. from there uh, moved into teaching high school English uh, and even a little bit of um, undergraduate freshman composition while I was in graduate mm -hmm. school, being mm -hmm. a high school uh, principal and administrator. Uh, so a wide variety of roles, um, but college advising has always been something that has been a part of my jobs really since my second year in, um, you know, in, in my career. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, that's spanned working in three schools, uh, two in North Carolina and one in California. Um, and I was also had the, the good fortune to be a an admission uh, first year freshman admission reader for UCLA mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. Uh, and so in and amongst those those various roles, uh, I've also had the good fortune to be of service in a couple of professional organizations, including the Southern Association for College Admission Counseling mm -hmm. and the Association for College Counselors in Independent Schools. So, yeah, so it sounds like you've had a lot of rich and varied experience in the school system. Um, so what was it about counseling that you think drew you towards it? Well, I uh, attended uh, Chadwick School in Palos Verdes in uh, Southern mm -hmm. California, mm -hmm. and I had an awesome college counselor named Carol Bernstein, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, a great advocate and guide uh, to me and my family. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being just fascinated by how her her role at mm -hmm. that particular time in my life and in the lives of my peers served so pivotal in helping us move in that transition between high school and college, which mm -hmm. I developed this fascination for. And so when at the end of my first year as a full-time teacher at Army and Navy Academy in San Diego, mm -hmm. uh, an opportunity to um, assume a, an administrative role that involved academic advising and college counseling mm -hmm. came, uh, came available. And so, I, again, I drew a lot from my background as a high school student in uh -huh. positioning myself to be able to, to assume that role and, and really haven't looked back since. And I think it's continued to be a really rewarding, uh, rewarding experience. So I think a combination of both having a, 
a, a great role model. And then uh-huh. subsequently the ability to work with such amazing people as, as I was new in the profession mm-hmm. uh, and have valuable mentors is what motivated me to get started. And then has, has kept me in it since. Tell us about the school you're in right now. Yeah, Ravenscroft School is a co-educational independent day school in Raleigh, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Uh, mm-hmm. Serves over 1,200 students in grades pre-K through 12. Uh, we have mm-hmm. about 470 students that are just in grades 9 through 12. Um, mm-hmm. my, our students are uh, bright and engaged and active in tons and tons of things, as most teenagers are <laughs> these days. Mm-hmm. Um and one of the cool things I think about our students is that as it relates to college advising is they are uh, open to looking all over the U.S. and abroad for colleges that fit their interests. Um, while mm. they may be you know, from North Carolina and obviously the college, college landscape in our state is really, really robust mm-hmm. that they, uh, with the support of their parents, will look um, at all the states uh, in many, many, many countries. And Uh so myself and my colleagues uh, get to explore and um, help them explore what else, you know, all the various places that are out there that might fit their, their college interests. So, so how do you see your role at Ravenscroft? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as a co-director of college counseling, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm part of a great team of, mm-hmm. of colleagues that, uh, you know, our, our role is really as one piece of the Ravenscroft experience, obviously the, sure. the, um, the, the relationships and experience they have as students in the classroom, with our faculty colleagues, with their coaches, with their music instructors, with their advisors, um, we are part of, really part of a village that is um, there to help create a great mm-hmm. experience for young people. Mm-hmm. And um, something that is hopefully transformational in a manner that leaves them um, graduating our school, um, having you know, be well on their pathway to developing their potential mm-hmm. um, and to be excited, um, even though there's always some nerves and anxiousness about the future, but yeah. excited and eager and hungry to embrace whatever that that future is. And so for us uh, at, in the college counseling, we spend a lot of time working hand in glove with uh, academic advice and the rest, helping students with course planning and then as we begin to get into sort of our curriculum related to college advising, uh, you know, being there to support the students, being able to su- there to support their families in mm-hmm. helping prepare for that transition uh, to life after Ravenscroft, whatever that entails, whether it's sure. immediately a four-year institution, which is what the, the overwhelming majority of our students go to, mm-hmm. um, or whether it's a gap year opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and the rest that trying to help. Um, not be prescriptive in what we um, share and provide to the families, but really being there to listen mm-hmm. and to advise and to counsel on what what is out there. And, and our school does a great job of supporting our interests mm-hmm. in 
uh, trying to go out there and, and participate in professional organizations and networking and, and professional development opportunities for counselors so that we are always at the forefront of knowing what's going on in, in the college admission landscape and then to be able to bring that back to our, our students and families so they have as timely information as, as we do. Of course. You've been doing this for a few decades now, you said, and uh, you must have developed some sort of approach to counseling. I don't know if I call it a philosophy or approach, but how, how do you see it? How do you see that um, approach working with students? What is it and kind of how does it work? Sure. Um, well, uh, in, in you're, you're right that over the over the years, that approach and philosophy has changed and evolved quite a bit. I think obviously it's become more informed by m working in different states and sure. having a wide variety of professional experiences that I think shape and color and adjust and tweak things over the years. I think mm -hmm. probably the clearest way for me to identify what it is, you know, that, you know, my professional journey to the extent that I can now say kind of what my philosophy is, is really about belief and a belief that I have in helping young people cultivate a thoughtful, reflective, uh, well-informed pathway between who they are and who they kind of hope to become mm -hmm. um, and the people that they will become and recognizing mm -hmm. that higher education is certainly a tremendous vehicle uh, to help them get there but not just any, not just any institution of higher learning, but ones that fit what their interests are. And so helping them sure. kind of identify what, what their hopes are and then having them be, you know, be reflective and thoughtful about how they might get to those goals that they've identified for, for themselves. So that's probably the, the clearest way that I can distill, mm -hmm. distill that. And, and I think you know, most, uh, but what, what has always been important to me and, and something that I'm continuing to refine in my practice, even all these mm -hmm. years since I began is the idea of being a partner and advocate for my students. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, you know, whether the outcomes that uh, they hope for um, arrive or not, uh, that I always want my students to know that I'm there to support them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't control acceptance rates as much as sure. I'd like to. Um, and the college list sometimes will have outcomes in the rest. And we spend a lot of time trying to um, develop lists with them that create a lot of outcomes and a lot of options for them. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, no matter what those outcomes produce, I think to me, it's again, how I, I can control how I show up for, for students. And that even when there are questions that I can't answer, uh, mm -hmm. that they know that I'm committed to finding the answer um, and that when things go well, that I'm there to um, celebrate with mm -hmm. them. And when things don't necessarily go their way, that I'm there to help them um, understand uh, what might have happened and to recover and to move forward, recognizing that, uh, you know, sometimes a no doesn't mean uh, as much as they may seem it does as it does to them and that they sure. try to move forward with a, a much clearer approach, um, you know, going forward. I think also I, I've really spent a lot more time in recent years helping students focus on 
the why behind things as much as as the what and so you know mm-hmm. the you know if you look at applications students are asked a lot about things that have already happened tell yeah. us about this um this favorite activity you've done list your activities tell us what uh a- accolades or positions or titles you held it's all mm-hmm. a very kind of backward looking uh factual um exchange of information but very rarely do colleges ask in their applications why students have done the things that they have done why were you a why did you become the president of the spanish club why Mm -hmm. did you continue playing um golf why did you continue to play the oboe and so uh, to me i really try to get students to think a great deal about that why because that's part of what um admission officers when they're trying to envision an applicant as a part of their university community they're trying Mm -hmm. to think about what what is it that this student is bringing with them what are the transferable skills and qualities and values that they've gained from doing all these various things in high school that they're going to bring forward with them because so many students don't continue all of the same slate of activities they Mm -hmm. did as a high school student as a collegian Sure. So when they stop doing those things, what are they then? Yeah. Um, and if they're a student that has, by virtue of, you know, being a part of a team, okay, what did you get by being a part of that team mm-hmm. that helps, that would be transferable into a college community where you might be a part of a team in some other respect, sure. but maybe not in the way that you were as a high school student. And, you know, whether, where, whenever you have the ability to share that information, it might be in the topics you choose for your essays, you know, again, not, don't just write about all the things you did as the club president, but you can, you know, have some treatment of that. But then what did you get by being there? What did you do well? What do you wish you would have done differently? Mm -hmm. Um, So reflect a level of humility and how you reflect on your, on what you've done and the, you know, and the courage, you know, to share that, um, when you, when you have an ability to do so with, uh, with, you know, with admission officers. Now that, that sounds outstanding. Now, what, what grade do you start engaging with the students in? Uh, primarily in the ninth grade. Um, okay. You know, we're, we're fortunate enough in our school that um, we can do some limited programming with, uh, with ninth graders. Uh, and at that point, where we begin is more a byproduct of helping them not necessarily focus on what test score they need to have to get into this university. That's, that's not particular, that's not necessarily developmentally appropriate at that point. Right. Our focus is on really about what high school represents, you know, this Mm -hmm. is a a chance to, um, you know, explore new academic interests to develop um, Mm -hmm. new extracurricular interests to connect to faculty and other mentors and people who, uh, whether they're your classroom teachers or advisors and the rest that can help you, that are there for you as part of this journey Mm -hmm. and to seize upon those opportunities. And then as we move through our our curriculum and start to get more focused on uh, more individualized in essence, uh, that's, you know, we see a, a movement away from that more generalized, you know, instruction and mm-hmm. um, advice for everybody into things that are more specific to each student. So what kind of challenges do you face? I mean, you know, you're 
you know, obviously each person is different, each student is different, but, and everyone is, comes wired with their own set of expectations and aspirations. Sure. Uh, I, I think one of the things that all of us, particularly in light of how much more selective, you know, universities, many universities are, not all universities, but a lot mm-hmm. of the universities probably get the most amount of attention, those that are in that highly selective or selective range, is that the the balance of, you know, between ambition and reality. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very easy to fall in love with a name or, or a brand, uh-huh. um, but getting students to look past the name to what is it about the university that actually is right for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yes, you know, it, it might be great that the university is prestigious and has a wonderful reputation, but do they offer the programs that you want? Um, do they offer you, and both whether it's academic in terms of majors or concentrations, uh, but also extracurricular opportunities mm-hmm. and the rest? Mm-hmm. And, and often as students dig into the minutiae a little bit more um, and are able to articulate, okay, I I like this about, I like these things about this university. They may still retain a strong interest in that really, really, really selective place. But part of what we also then look to try to find is to help them say, okay, you can find those things that you want in many, many, many other institutions that don't also reject 97% of their applicants. <laughs> right. uh, and so to have like, let's be ambitious. You know, if, if it's always been your dream to apply to that ultra selective school, let's go for it. And let's talk about how you put forward the best application you can mm-hmm. while we also, and uh, look at adding other schools to that list that give you options, because it's very, very easy these days for a student to, apply in such a manner that they leave themselves no options right. and that, that there's not that balance between ambition with reality. And so I think that that's always, that's a, a, a challenge for, sure. for all counselors um, on an annual basis, working with, particularly working with high achieving students that um, are, you know, conditioned and told by a lot of, a lot of resources and a lot of media outlets and the rest that here are the places that are going to, you know, here are the places you should apply and that are really selective because these are the ones that are going to um, suggest that you are as exceptional as, as you are and lose sight of, and and unfortunately lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of places you can go to and and still become that. Um, So I, I think that that's a, I think that's a baseline uh, challenge for counselors. I think as you zoom out to the count, you know, college admission counseling industry and landscape, which now, yeah. you know, if you in aggregate, uh, you know, is over a billion dollars in terms of all of the various entities right. that are that make up that. I think part of what you begin to see is that this industry has, has changed a great deal. Uh, yeah. You know, in, in, in 1961, Eisenhower, you know, popularized the term military industrial complex yep. to kind of yep. describe the state of affairs in the United States. Yep. I think it's fair to look, when you look at the state of co- the industry involving college admissions to suggest that it's a commercial and psychometric marketplace um, <laughs> that, you know, and all of which is created by humans um, mm-hmm. 
you know, but that it is, it's not a system as it might be in other, uh, in other countries where a particular exam result means that you have yeah. access to a, a certain subset of schools and sure. the rest and that there's no ambiguity in the rest to it. Uh, there is ambiguity in, in our process yeah. um, and that marketplace rather. So rather than it being a system that works in a systematic fashion, it functions like a marketplace where, yeah. uh, you know, students have a wide variety of choice in not only how they apply, but where they apply, when they apply uh, the uh, influence of testing uh, mm -hmm. on how and where students can apply the influence of commercial entities that um, exist within the space of college admissions to support and guide and uh, provide, uh, you know, items and tools and resources. If you put all of that together, it's very quick. You lose sight of the fact that this is, you know, very often a, a you know, a, an older adolescent yeah. <laughs> um, trying to figure out where it is that they want to continue their education in, you know, a, a, among the 3000 plus degree granting institutions in the United States, um, mm -hmm. not to mention those beyond, not to mention um, the, two-year college, the technical and community college landscape sure. that is really incredibly robust in our sure. country. It's very easy to lose sight of all that and be overwhelmed by it. And so I, I see that that the, the presence of that marketplace and how dominant commercial, uh, commercial interests have become in that marketplace, sense, you know, to me, feels like there's a sense of that balance between the, you know, the art and science involved yeah. in college admissions beginning to shift a little bit more away from the art, beginning to shift away a little bit more from the humanity uh, in that is that yeah. that is that has been present and that is present. And that that focus of the humanity, of the participants involved in the process. I mean, you think yeah. about a handful of a handful of items, you know, the application volumes are soaring. Yeah. But at the same time, admission office staffs are not necessarily growing. Um, yeah. And in some cases, they are declining, which means that those those humans that are tasked with um, reading and evaluating applications uh, are expected to do more work with in less time um, with fewer people. And, you know, all of that comes down to when you think of when, you know, and I talk to students a lot about how much time is actually spent with their applications. Yeah. Those, those staffing shortages, you know, are direct relation to a decrease in the amount of time and engagement with applications, which, which is worrisome, you know, and so, yeah. you know, yeah. universities have to adjust and adapt sometimes their processes in order to be able to meet the demands of application deadlines and releases while still doing it as thoughtfully as possible. Uh, that that's, that's certainly a concern. You know, we saw um, in, you know, a few years ago and even to some degree to this day, predatory student lending practices, yeah, um, yeah. you know, populations that were really hard hit by that include um, military veterans. Uh, you know, there's a great documentary and that came out in 2017 called fail state that really looked into predatory lending practices. You know, here's mm -hmm. people that are trying to leverage their, their life experience and military experience to gain higher education. And, you know, they were looked at as profit centers more so mm -hmm. than, 
um, more so than people, you know, needing, you know, and wanting a great education. Uh, coming up this June, you know, the upcoming Supreme Court decision yes. um, related to race conscious admissions. You know, we don't know yet, um, you know, what that outcome will be. It could limit the use of, of race as an admission factor. It could eliminate mm-hmm. it altogether. Um, but whatever, you know, it certainly stands to reason that a very critical element of an applicant's humanity uh, might be removed from the process. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are, I think those are, those are challenges. Now, the good thing that, uh, that I'm certainly, again, we talk about shifts and changes is the, the initiatives, the people that are connected um, to the process that work within the process that are working to try to center that humanity in admissions um, mm-hmm. through efforts related to equity and access, um, scrutiny and examination of components of the admission process based mm-hmm. on research and data uh, to try to make more data informed decisions about, you know, are the things that have always historically been a part of the admission process, are those things equitable? Are they yeah. creating access or are they simply perpetuating barriers to higher education? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're also looking at recruiting efforts for sure. underrepresented and marginalized populations. I mean, a, a great example of if you think about um, the work that um, I, I do some um, advising in support of uh, students in rural uh, settings with a colleague of mine. And, and by virtue of that, we've seen where major, major high select, highly selective institutions from metropolitan areas are mm-hmm. focusing efforts to f- try to find and support rural students, whether they ever end up matriculating to their to those highly selective urban universities or not mm-hmm. still the idea that they would take the time and devote resources to going into those populations and those communities whether it's regardless of socioeconomics um, you know location proximity to urban centers or not that there are people invested people and dollars invested in supporting students no matter where they are so uh, yes there's there's a there's a a dynamic tension between yeah. forces that are drawing it um away from the humanity but thankfully uh there's also a really really strong pull to keep and center the humans that are in this process and make this truly student and applicant centered no, I think I think that's that's great. I mean, I think um, the challenges and the landscape that you laid out is spot on. Now, people are focused on the ones that, you know, the media and, and so on and so forth, and the rankings uh, sort of drive maybe fifty or hundred names. Or uh, how how do you get people to sort of look at um, this beyond just the names? you know, more in terms of getting it into their heads that, right. um, you know, these are all good choices. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, I think for those that are the, the most highly selective or ultra selective, you know, you can qualify it however, however yeah. you wish, um, you know, is to remind them that they are, these are global applicant pools. And I think mm-hmm. it's very easy to look at it and say, well, I'm, the valedictorian or the salutatorian, or I'm one of the top students at my school. And that mm-hmm. means that there's a spot for me in said university. Um, mm-hmm. That's not really how it works. You know, if anything, right. you know, in the United States, there are something like 40,000 
um, secondary schools that graduate students eligible to go to college. Mm-hmm. Well, there aren't 40,000 places in the applicant, you know, in the incoming yeah. freshman classes of, you know, Ivy League schools and add a handful of others that have a great deal of international um, a, a tremendous international reputation. So there's not even room for the valedictorian of every mm-hmm. school in there. Right. Uh, and I'll never forget several years ago, I had a, a young man who had the, the great fortune. It was a tremendous young man who was admitted um, restrictive early action to Yale. And, and at the time, Yale had this map um, in, the, in this sort of admitted student portal that showed where the other restrictive early applicants um, that were admitted hailed from. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was one of two dots in the state of North Carolina. Uh-huh. Um, and that's in and, and I, that gave me a moment of pause to begin with because there were so many wonderful, wonderful <laughs> students at some wonderful institutions, um, you know, high schools that are in there that for whatever reason, he was one of the two. But then as you zoomed out across the world, you know, yeah. there was a student from Madagascar, there were students from, New Zealand, you know, it, and you began to get this impression that this very, very, very small number of students was drawn from the world, not just right. the best at this high school. And that's a, and it's, it's a humbling yeah. sort of perspective to provide, but it's really critical that students understand that. And it's not just at, you know, the top 20 schools, you know, or however students figure that yeah, yeah. or the brands that are known best that, you know, all institutions, even public institutions, you know, I, I grew up in California, the University of mm-hmm. California system, you know, yep. arguably, you know, the most widely regarded and respected public institute, public university system in the world mm-hmm. is, you know, is in our international campuses, um, yeah. you know, and they are, they're recruiting faculty and employee and, and administrators and students uh, all to try to make it world-class mm-hmm. uh, and you are become you know world-class by looking to expand your borders beyond your local proximity and whatever that that entails and so mm-hmm. I, I think that I trying to provide that perspective to say so you know as long as you understand that um, then now let's talk about you know why, what it is that some of those students that might be successful moving forward, that looking beyond your context, that excellence mm-hmm. in your local context as a high school student is certainly very much, you know, very important. But mm-hmm. one of the things that we see is a growing, um, I don't want to say need or, or expectation perhaps to that students that are desirous of admission to those more selective places have distinguish themselves in air in ways beyond their local context that might be mm-hmm. regionally it might be nationally it might be beyond again mm-hmm. it might be that and that and that could be in athletics it could be in the arts it could be in research it could be in yeah. writing um you know it could be in service uh that that becomes more you know more significant to successful applicants than it may have been in may have been in the past and so i think again trying to provide some of those updates to families so th- that they recognize that okay you know that uh, that shouldn't deter a student perhaps from pursuing admission to those places but to pursue it in a manner where they're aware of that and that again back to what i was saying before like be ambitious but then let's yeah. also develop 
um, a little bit more to the other end of, you know, um, the spectrum to provide, make sure that you provide yourself options from which to choose at whatever point that that becomes necessary in the process. What would you tell the uh, students about the upcoming applications? I mean, how do you deal with uh, this whole post-pandemic situation, uh, if you can call it that? You know, there's test optional, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, impending decisions, uh, and there are other factors. And of course, cost is another huge factor, you know, right. financial aid, scholarships sure. and all that. So what are some of the, um, you know, approaches one can take? How, how should a student sort of approach all this? Yeah, well, I, I think there, um, I mean, there are a number of things that are coming. I mean, I, first and foremost, I think about the research and education. I mean, this, uh, when I think back to my college search process, mm-hmm. I sent in a postcard to a college to receive a paper-based book uh, mm-hmm. or a view book and potentially a course catalog. And that was the extent of the information I had about a college. Right. Um, there may be a data guide somewhere in the rest. So this, the, you know, students in this generation have access to an extraordinary amount of information, both that's about the universities, but um, produced by mm-hmm. others, but most importantly, produced by the universities themselves. And the pandemic, when it compromised the in-person visiting significantly, a lot of schools had to look at how it is that they reach students to share mm-hmm. their stories in a virtual manner. And that, mm-hmm. I think, has done a, has really helped from helped balance the equity and access in that to a place where no matter where you are, hopefully as long as you can have an internet connection, you Mm -hmm. can engage with these universities um, through visit virtual visit opportunities, uh, virtual information sessions, virtual engagement and chat sessions with, Mm -hmm. uh, with university offers in a manner that never requires you to actually go to the campus. Uh, There's still no substitute for an in-person visit, but that can be expensive and costly to families that do not have mm-hmm. those resources. So I, I, I really like how much those virtual programs um, developed and have also remained by schools because those are really a great way for students to continue to learn about, um, learn about universities of interest to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the, the landscape of test optional, you know, I think each year is, is, we see shifts and changes. I think the majority of universities still have uh, that are out there still have a test optional um, mm-hmm. approach or test flexible approach. I think fairtest.org is a great uh, website resource for students to get up to date information about exactly what places are test optional and what their policies mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, we we continue to advise students to. Um, consider testing because there may be occasions where if their testing is strong enough that it can still benefit them. Um, mm-hmm. But we also are in a position where we are advising students to, even if we're there advising them to take, to sit for the SAT or ACT, that mm-hmm. we may be at a position later on if their testing just doesn't emerge to be as strong as they hope for the places of interest, that then we then have a conversation about whether to provide the test or not. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're still, you know, a couple of years in, we're still seeing a mixture of, um, you know, strong, you know, strong value of the testing, 
but that is not widespread. Um, there yeah. are places that are very much when they say test optional, it means test optional and that a student's evaluation is not compromised by the absence of that factor in in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think we are seeing, um, you know, when you think about the value of applying early that continue. I haven't we haven't really seen a dramatic change in that other than just that it continues to. Uh, increase steadily in in insignificance as sort of an expression of love and affection for these universities. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, I think if you're looking at private colleges that have that, you know, a binding early plan or restrictive plan, or even a, even an early action plan uh, Mm -hmm. that those are that, you know, there's a, that's a a statistically significant, um, difference in the accept rates for those. Um, we absolutely the case at really highly selective liberal arts colleges that have really yep. small applicant volumes where, um, you know, you may see a, a, a minuscule number of applicants admitted uh, early and, you know, but a huge volume of applicants for, a, again, a, an equally small group of, of, uh, of students later on. Mm-hmm. Um I think the, you know, the, uh, there's still a lot of uh, talk about rankings and ranking methodology and the rest. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time utilizing those with students. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I always encourage students, anytime you see a ranking is to look at the methodology and what makes yeah. up the methodology and how those change um, and the rest, uh, you know, the rankings are a resource, but they should yeah. not be the only resource when, students are looking to build a list of colleges. Um, it needs to be informed by far more things, you know, more first and foremost, a student thinking about what's important to them and doing the yeah. research with, you know, university provided materials. And of course, with guidance from, you know, uh, school counselors, um, uh, community-based organizations focused on college access um, mm-hmm. and other resources of that sort. Um, I, I do think one of the things that is, I'll be really fascinated and, you know, and we'll probably be discussing a great deal with our students is the, uh, the use of AI um, yes, generated chat, essays. Um, chat GPT. You know, yes, with chat GPT and other, other similar AI bots that will be, you know, I'm sure will continue to proliferate the reliance on those without alteration. That's, I think, a concern for me because you can, you know, if you, you play with those, you can get a, a decent essay written yeah, yeah. Um, by those. It, it won't write a great essay that is going to be heavily personalized about your reasons for things. So I, I think it's not a panacea. It's not a shortcut because I do think that without alteration, without personalization, they stand to, you know, not be, maybe it might be a solid essay or a good one, but not a great one. Yeah. Uh, so I, my hope is that students don't blindly rely on the convenience of artificial intelligence in generating essays because it may not yield the success that they hope it was, you know, they're, they're, that they really still need to continue to invest the time and energy into writing thoughtful original work of their own in their own voice and about them that that will still be 
the best path forward. Uh, So those are a variety of the things that I think we, you know, we think about when, you know, life after the the pandemic um, as, or at least as it's beginning to kind of recede. And then, you know, I think until, until we know with the the Supreme court decision about how race will play a factor in, um, in admissions going forward from that point uh, it's tough to know, how best to advise students, um, particularly students of color, whose, um, you know, whose ethnicity and race will may not be incorporated into their evaluation in the manner that it had before, but that will certainly be something to pay attention to. So Sean, we're gonna start winding down, but before I let you go, um, you know, you've been doing this for a couple of decades there's so much excitement and passion in your voice. And there's, you know, you're thinking about big things, small things, strategic, tactical. What, what keeps you excited uh, every day? Uh, honestly, student energy and curiosity. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm getting older <laughs> every year this goes by <laughs> and this process ages, ages myself and those of us that are involved in it, whether it's on the high school side or the college side or the, you know, uh, um, you know, no matter where, no matter where it is. But the cool thing about students is that that energy and curiosity, that sense of invulnerability, mm-hmm. the hunger and the eagerness they have to um, think about their future and to be a part of that is really is really very inspiring. Alternatively, those students that are very apprehensive about that future that have for whatever reason their experience um, has led them to distrust um, mm-hmm. education and wonder whether it's uh, it's it's the right thing for them to continue it. Maybe they haven't had academic success or they've had mm-hmm. um, environmental or family circumstances that have prevented uh, barriers to them to even just to attend high school. I think that idea that there is a place for them and that higher education can be accessible for a lot of people and myself and a lot of people in our industry that are trying to do everything we can to make it accessible to all to help them gain the confidence to make that next step Um, recognizing the 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 value that the social mobility that can occur for a young person um, through educate through higher education Mm -hmm. that you know so both can you know supporting those that already know that they're headed in that direction, but then also trying to help and encourage those who are skeptical about that next step, um, gain the confidence to, to make that next move. And, and at a time when they are still trying to figure themselves out as, as, as young people, as soon to be legal adults um, and young adults, it's just a really fascinating time. Um, to enter into someone's life and to be uh, a place of support and, and expertise. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, you're doing great service, great work. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on and talking about your experience. Um, certainly lots of topics to explore in the future and I'd love to have more conversations, but for right now, thank you so much. Take care, be safe. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. And and students, make sure you engage with your school counselor early and often. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. All right. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Bye-bye.
try again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Sean Kennedy of Ravenscroft School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Sean's approach for counseling has been shaped by his experience over the last few decades. As an advocate and supporter of students, helping students understand themselves and their talents better, managing expectations, and celebrating their outcomes. I hope college-bound students and their parents find Sean's perspective useful. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash alma matters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you. College Matters. Alma Alma Matters. Matters.